Hi, this is Charlie Peck with the Thriving School Community Podcast. Listen, we're with Kenneth Bourne today. We are going to have such an incredible conversation that's infecting our schools. Kenneth, I know you've got great solutions and suggestions. First, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me. I'm super excited that we connected. Yes, me too, because there's so much there's so much work to do in society for crying out loud. And my way in of course, besides families, because the system of families needs to to improve, but schools, and that's where like so many kids of our so many of our kids show up, which is why I work with schools so much. But let's get a little background with you. Tell everybody a little bit about where you're coming from with this topic. Yeah, so I am the founder and CEO of my own organization called Born and New. Um, I started it to simply put, combat the uh, systemic violence that Black bodies face um, on a daily. Um, and I know that's like a broad overview mission. Like, uh, what does that even mean? Um, honestly, it really is to just build the capacity of educators and organizations. Um, build their ability to be able to support the well-being of Black boys and men um, so that they can build confidence, explore purpose, and live healthier and happier lives. Um, and so a lot of what I do is to restore the well-being within Black boys and men, um, you know, helping them kind of have uh, healthier minds. And so I look at a lot of, um, recently, you know, became a meditation teacher, did some courses with an organization um, called Mindful and um, the holistic aspect of it, the brain, the body, the connection, uh, understanding how it all intersects, right? Your culture, your environment, how that actually affects, right? Like literally like your DNA, um, your makeup. And so being able to do that and also support educators or organizations ability to understand that so that when they do serve or they do create a new system or policy, uh, we are actually getting back to meeting the needs of people um, and not, I feel like what we're doing now are making people less happy, making them just a little bit less miserable. Uh, and so I want to do the complete opposite. Um, but how I got here, I am born and raised in Philadelphia, uh, Southwest. Um, yeah, I went through a lot. I worked in a number of places. I used to work at Drexel University, which is a college downtown in Philly. Um, I was their community intervention specialist. It just means trauma-informed therapist. Um, mm -hmm. But they have a, a, a center for nonviolence and social justice. Um, and they have a program called Heal and Hurt People within that center. And what we did was work on stopping the perpetuation of violence um, within indiv individuals ages 8 to 35 who experienced uh, being shot, stabbed, um, that type of violence, robbed. Um, and we had a, a, a number of connections with some emergency rooms and a few hospitals and so we can see their intakes when they come in and so somebody may come in who has been shot or stabbed or assaulted any um in any way shape or form we do like 24 to 48 hour outreach you know do our best to figure out what happened in the safest way as possible um i am now a trauma informed competent professional um but back then just a licensed social worker which i still in um, but we would do a lot yeah we would try to meet their needs wherever they were so i was doing therapy and anywhere you could think of. So I was in the projects or I'd be downtown in our office or I'd be outside in the nearby park wherever they felt comfortable because we talk about people who experience um, trauma on a daily, but then they experience right this next level of um, violence. And how do we support their needs, but also stop the retaliation or the per uh, perpetuation of it? Um, so that was one of the jobs. I was a school social worker for a while too. Um, oversaw a bunch of teens um, in Camden, New Jersey. Um, I worked at an organization called Urban Promise. Yeah, I worked at a clinic before um, helping mm -hmm. people. So a lot what you can see with my passion is working with those who are, um, who voices are not listened to, uh, mm -hmm. who have been strategically and systemically, you know, experienced violence on a number of levels, um, oppression, individuals in that sense. So like when I worked at the clinic, I think that's where I got my human experience because I work with refugees, um, immigrants, people who experience houselessness, um, you name it, in and out of prison, trying to meet their needs. Um, and so a lot where my heart lies is to figure out what I'm working on now is really to figure out what is the factors for health. I think we have enough systems or we have enough data 
or enough scales and assessments that focus on the pathology and disease. And if you check off these X amount of boxes, right, your life trajectory looks like this. So for me, it's like, what if you check off these X amount of boxes and your life can look another way, right? Um, mm. And that's a topic that we can um, dive into later, especially as we talk about violence. Yeah, we need to. I mean, you mentioned so many things here that we could dive into. And you you mentioned specifically young Black men or young Black youth that you worked with. And I know before we actually recorded, we've had some conversations leading up to this and you have a book about that. You actually have a like affirmations, oh, yeah. right? Like a guide, a free Black yeah. male affirmation guide. Tell us about that and why yeah. specifically that marginalized group. Yeah, so um, one... Um, being a black male in America is very complicated, complex, but it can be very beautiful and fun at the same time. And so me being like the first my family to go to college, I was the first from my high school to get a graduate level degree. Um, so charting all this new territory, experiencing a whole lot of failure, um, going to predominantly white institutions. I did things the academic way. So I played ball when I was younger. But I realized that uh, that I didn't want to just, I didn't want my opportunities to be minimized to an athlete uh, uh, in basketball when I say ball. And so I chose academics. So I stopped playing ball when I was very young. Um, and I remember when I was got into a college called Dennis University um, in Granville, Ohio, and touring the school. And I remember there was a number of parents um, who would, you know, see me and my mom and my pop at the time, who he passed away, but during that time he was alive. Um, they thought I was there on like a sports scholarship. They would literally ask me like, you know, like, oh, hey, uh, I did, you know, oh, really they just kind of say like, well, you know, what sport do you play? Um, and I got here purely off of academics. Uh, and so I started to question like, what does my identity say to people? Um, what does that look like? What are people expecting? Because what I have learned is people don't experience reality. They experience their reality based off of their expectations. Um, and so what does my identity say? So then I did a, a thesis. It was like a 60 page, I think it was like 65 page paper uh, for my sociology major on exploring like black male identity um, and all that kind of stuff. And so that just became my passion, just mainly due to my experiences of going through certain organizations um, that is predominantly white, or even if it's not predominantly white, the systems itself just doesn't suit me, or it wasn't designed with me in mind, or at least my health, or my culture, or my people, my family, my community. And so um, I wanted to make sure I meet that need, or do my best to meet that need. As time went on, our numbers are still getting worse, right? So like, our suicide numbers went from third leading cause to second leading cause. Uh, and so when we start to lose Black boys and men at their own hands, uh, it starts to, for me, it's always been um, right a crisis or issue. Um, but I think it was easier for people to understand, right, if it was police brutality or something of that nature. But when they take their own lives, uh, to me, it's is screaming at this idea of like, they don't feel that there's no other way out of this. Uh, and life is the amount of stress that we have to deal with. What we all know is inhumane. There's no way of, 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 of easing it or getting through with it. So that's why I picked that specific population. When I go to schools and do things like that, um, you know, sometimes they say like, is it okay if there's girls or things like that in the room? And that is totally fine because what I do applies to everybody. I just want black boys and men to, understand that it's for them too. Because when we look at schools, it's always more girls in schools than it is boys. When you do programming, when mm -hmm. you offer programming in our communities, it's always more girls that show up than boys. Um, and so I titled my book, Anger Management for Black Male Teens. Um, and it's not, it's for educators, organizational leaders, the adults to assist folks uh, at adolescent age. So that's totally 24 to assist them. But I needed to put black male teens on there so that when you are reading this, because you're going to see that it's going to apply to anybody. Uh, but when you are reading it, I don't want you to forget those uh, folks in mind. So instead of data, I use stories um, to kind of explain the data. Um, and so 
yeah, that's kind of how I got to this to this subset. And honestly, every organization I worked at, they flocked to me. It was just natural for them to want to talk to me and connect. So just mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. And I think it's important that we address that straight on, like no BS. We know that, and, and you all clearly know more than I do, but, um, but I know that this is a marginalized group, young black males in America. They are, there's plenty of statistic and statistics and education to show that you go to different areas of the country and um, there's still a prevalence there. It, course that's cultural of course there's a lot to it but let's dive into the identity piece because when we have to form an identity as we're growing up uh, that cycle of violence we talked about before we recorded too is perpetuated for this particular group or marginalized kids already and identity is so closely related to suicidality to violence and and how that's perpetuated or not or how it's broken so let's talk about that kenneth how do you think our schools need, need to approach this problem, the problem of hopelessness and suicidality and losing out on opportunities or perception for these particular kids? Yeah, so when I do retreats or uh, workshops or professional developments with teachers, one of the things, for organizations, honestly, one of the things I talk about is this idea of salutogenics. Uh, and so Salutogenics really is just this idea of the origin of health. Um, and it's really getting back to like the most natural way of, uh, how can I put it? Healing in a sense. So for example, so in 1971, from the research that I read, a dude named Antonovsky, um, he had interviewed um Israeli women who had been in concentration camps during the Holocaust um, because despite all that had happened to them, some of them had managed to stay in good health. And I don't know what good health means, but that's just what um, the research that he puts in his book, good health while others didn't. And so he was trying to find an explanation of like, you know, you lived in a concentration camp and you still managed a quote unquote good life or still had good health. And so for him, it was trying to figure out what is this potential factors that lead to you still having right a good luck. So like this is the idea that yeah. life is always going to happen. So I, in the beginning, when I apologized for us and our scheduling, you was like, that's life, right? You have a sense of what I would say coherence, what we talk about in a minute. And I have a sense of coherence, this idea of like understanding that life is going to happen. But what, what, what does that mean? Like the stressors, um, the challenges. Um, and that you have a, a a deeper understanding that it all suits you in a way to help you get to your goal or get to that next step um, or to be able to complete that versus it being like the stressors are so much that I can't, um, I feel like I don't have the resources to manage them. They don't make sense and it doesn't make life more meaningful. So he came up with this idea called the sense of coherence. And so it's this idea that life, which is normal, um, in a sense, you can say stress is normal. Um, and the things that's going to happen uh, are supposed to happen in life. So it's this idea of comprehensibility. So being able to understand just that level of like stress is going to come, stressors are going to happen, things are out of your control that are going to happen. You need, and then it's three stages. So it's comprehensibility, manageability, and then meaningfulness. So once you just comprehend the idea that to an extent, these things are normal. And I, I want to use that word very lightly because I think a lot of what we see is not normal at all. Um, but to an extent, you can kind of expect that. It's kind of predictable to know that like, you know, life, especially for Black people, ain't probably what we want it to be or the systems that we work in or learn in wasn't created with us in mind, all that kind of stuff. So we are, Sorry, that. I'm going to stop you. Kenneth, is that the perception or is that what kids and adults around them are telling them or what, where does that come from? And is that something we need to then change? Cause we all understand we all have stress. So I want to be very specific with this particular group because of that, that identity issue there. That's a huge piece, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a mixture of both. So, um, when I work with so the reason why I created that, you mentioned the affirmation guide. 
um, after, in the beginning, I was on a lot of one-on-ones. Ages didn't matter. I was, people reached out friends, all age groups. Yeah. And what I realized is after um, it was hundreds, I realized that um, the their understanding of their identity, um, unconscious or conscious, passed down through generations of trauma, through systems, um, culture, society, and then they take it on too, um, and they start to internalize it. Um, I created what I call like a complete guide because it looks at it under, I try to help them understand how words can manifest in your body and then how it determines your reality kind of thing. And so I created that because they internalize what they see on the daily or what they experience on the daily. So for example, we know the bias with black boys in school, right? Like teachers will watch black boys differently than they watch other students. Um, and they're specifically looking for behavior issues and why in schools that are predominantly black, right, have crazy suspension rates or they have very punitive policies when it comes to behavior or they have high special education numbers, uh, students who identify as needing special education. And so things like that, right, it can, it goes hand in hand. So I'll use my nephew, for example. Um, when he was in pre-K and first grade, um, all of the conversation was there was the schools were very big on he needs uh, a lot of other behavioral supports. Um, and it was just behavioral supports, behavioral supports. And it was pushing us to put him in special education, special education, special education. Um, and we, in supporting my sister, um, I, I was in on a lot of meetings and none of the talk was really about trying to get down to what I may call the nitty gritty. What is it really um, that's bothering him? Because when he's with me or with his mom, the same behaviors that y'all seeing, we don't experience. Or if we do experience, we you know have a way of working with him. Um, and so why is it that y'all don't have those same resources or tools? Or what is it that we can do to make sure we help him in a way that doesn't funnel him in a system that we know isn't going to support him or is going to funnel him to prison, right? To school, to prison pipeline kind of thing. So what, so what was he doing at school that he was not doing at home or that was mitigated more quickly at home? So what they will call, um, right, like disruptive behavior uh, and disruptive behavior could be talking out of turn, right? Um, and if we connect the dots to um, uh, understanding how children and their brains develop, uh, and this is me getting in on my little soapbox right here, but school, okay. uh, a six-year-old being in school, uh, we are trying to get them to conform to a certain way of being. And if we understand what school is really created for, which our schools was really built out the industrialization period and trying to make better employees. And so to sit down and shut up. Um, and if mm -hmm. you talk out of turn, you get punished for that. That doesn't develop your sense of voice. Uh, it doesn't develop your sense. Of, it doesn't help develop your sense of voice um, or your sense of identity. And so if he gets frustrated because he's excited about wanting to answer the question and he yells it out, versus he needs to raise his hand and conform instead of being like, we know you're excited, um, X, Y, and Z, it becomes a punishment of you keep talking out of turn. Uh, and that leads to suspension. We need to call your parents or your family member. Um, and at home, or as we take him out to the community, he gets very excited, right? And I'm not going to use the hyper words or whatever, but he does get very excited. Um, mm -hmm. And to me, that is a good thing. Um, that is the energy. And so a way in which we control the energy is like, hey, do you want to, what is it that you are exhibiting right now? Like, what is it that you want to do, right? So if he's in the house and you don't want him to throw the ball around the house or he's like he's talking too loud, you either match the voice that you want him, the tone that you want him to um, to speak in, or you say like, you want to, do you want to go play? Like, what is it that you need right now? Uh, but at school, that's not a possibility. Uh, and so, mm -hmm. because they just don't have those, it's just not built in that way, right? For a child's development necessarily. Because for um, traditional education, they're sitting more, they're needing to conform to the norm and all of that, correct? And is yeah. this unique in certain, like, is this unique to like young black kids because of the identity or because you feel like they're being mislabeled or does the data show they're being mislabeled because, or, or if it's not just that particular group, marginalized children, kids in different populations who have you know, different kinds of disadvantages. I, because I want to make sure that we address this honestly, 
right? Through education, because this is where they're showing up. And if it's not supporting kids and we're mislabeling and misguiding them, then we need to do something about that, right? And behavior is such a big deal. It's a big problem. I hear things that um, from your nephew that my kid was doing in class too. And, um, you know, there's ADHD and, and this shows up. But are we already mislabeling that, right? Like, so I want to dive deeper into that, Kenneth. I really want to understand for this sure. from you. Yeah, for sure. So I'll be very honest. Me, I'm not a big fan of diagnosing uh, folks, children, as the first line of defense. Uh, because mm-hmm. they are, we know they are to be, we know them to be sponges, right? Like if we get very deep down with this, the ages of zero to three, are very influential to their identity, their well-being. The next phase in which is as detrimental is adolescence, which is 12 to 24, because their brain is going through crazy amounts of changes. Not crazy, going through a lot of changes, which is their brain is very plastic and it's trying to understand. School, research shows, we can, even if we look at it, from medical research, right? Like upcoming doctors, they wasn't even doctors yet. They were in doctoral programs um, to become MDs, practice in medicine. They were surveyed and they already had a bias that black folks can take more pain. Uh, Hmm. And so when we go to the hospital, uh, I'll give you a personal story. One of my professors in college, when when she experienced chest pain, she calls when she calls and on one whatever. She always tells them that like it's like it's she having a heart attack because she knows that's the only way that they will actually look into it deeper and not send her home with some Tylenol and say like you know sleep it off rest you need rest um, and to kind of move past that. So it's the thing with school like teacher bias right. They're coming in this way. There isn't no you don't get there's no onset training to be a teacher. Now you can become certified in subjects to teach certain subjects, but what does that actually mean? There's no onset in building relationships with people who don't look like you, or there isn't mm-hmm. no cultural competency training to understand how you navigate this environment and community that you're about to be working in. Um, there isn't much yeah. around, yeah, there isn't much around that in order for you to, and what, what we end up seeing is, I was a school social worker for all black boys middle school. Um, there was times where we couldn't keep a teacher uh, sometimes for we may hire them and they'd be going that same week. Uh, hmm. And so what their passions and what their heart was to do, not what they weren't necessarily, they weren't prepared in my eyes or supported to navigate the real challenges you're about to experience when you step into these underfunded, overlooked, uh, systemically violently oppressed institutions. Um, and so the students feel that and they say that and if you talk to them they know that this place is not for them Um, or the teacher that steps in you don't really care Uh, and so they will test you and push you because every system that we have encountered has used us as data and experiments Um, Mm -hmm. so which is why I'm not big on diagnosing um, and I can't man I'm blanking on a book Um, where they look at how some of our diagnosing came about, right? And it, it was ex- exper- it was experimenting on black people a while, a long time ago. Uh, and so there's things that's hard for me to explain sometimes because we feel it in our DNA because generationally it's just been passed down. Uh, that violence has been passed down. And so mm-hmm. part of why I love to do the PDs and the trainings and show up in that way is because there isn't no other form of training that you're going to get that's going to do help you put on more armor or have more resources to be able to withstand and stay in because we do need you all, right? Like whatever, don't really matter what you look like and not, we need you to understand to a certain level, um, a number of things so that when you finally get to be able to teach and whatever it is, if it's something as simple as math, uh, the disconnect is you haven't been onboarded in a way that understands that the children or the students understand uh, or feel safe or feel you are a person that we want to learn from or trust. Uh, and so it just gets communicated, not verbally. It gets communicated through um, the way in which we perpetuate school. It's just too old, in my words. It is very old. 
and it is not working. Um, go ahead. I know you have a question. I have a lot of them, but I'm also <laughs> so intrigued by what you're saying. Like I truly am hanging on every word you're saying, because what I keep asking is, what do we do? What do we do? So, okay. So leaders yeah, are listening forward. to this people who are positioned in schools who want to create change and want to support kids who are in that systemic, well, well, I'm not trying to use big words. They have systemic problems, right? Or violence. We use the word violence. Let's use that. Violence is showing up in our schools with our kids, even little ones. And you're right. This is what's burning teachers out so much. I'm doing a PD session on Thursday with teachers on responding more effectively to challenging yeah. behaviors because it's such a problem and it's causing overwhelm. And these are teachers who are good teachers who love kids. Yeah. So how do we talk to them differently? What do we do to equip them? Equip teachers or students? Teachers, because I think they're the leaders. I think they've, I they're they the ones who have to create that safety for the kids. So the kid wants to show up and engage with them, which takes a lot of time. It won't happen overnight. So what do you, what do you suggest? So what do I suggest for teachers to pretty much be able to make that connection or effectively teach or kind of break that barrier? Here's where I'm coming from, Kenneth. You and I both know that education leaders listen they're listening and they're like, what do I do? What do I, I will pay for that cultural training that you need, that responsiveness, but tell me what you will do that will make them want to stay and respond more effectively to that challenging behaviors that show up. Okay. So, so I came up with uh, a system out of um, evidence-based research practical, um, just life experience, but then also being in these different spaces. And what I help teach um, after we go through the brain and meditation and body, it's this idea of what I call the three C's. So if you're familiar with trauma-informed, you listen to me, you're familiar with trauma-informed um, practices like the three R's, which is to like regulate, relate, and reason to folks. I come up with this thing called the three C's, which are connect, compassion, and co-conspirator. And so they go in the order in which your brain is developed, just like the three R's do. So the three R's go from the bottom up. And so the, the three C's go connect, compassion, and um, co-conspirator. So if you want something to do right away, mm-hmm. like as soon as we, you stop listening to this, the first thing I always, not always, but when I finally get to this point in the session is this idea of connecting. And so people say, you know, they probably do that greatly or that's, you know, it's not rocket science. Like, yeah, I know how to connect with folks. What I'm suggesting you do is call identify with the subjective experience. Uh, and so I kind of am not reinventing the wheel, playing off of this guy named Dan Siegel, which is what we, some of us have, you know, quoted as like a brain expert. Uh, and I do, I like a lot of his books and his work. Um, he refers to this as, if you can identify with the subjective experience, you can talk somebody off of a ledge. And he has a whole, scenario about that and why i like this a lot is because i'm telling you how black boys are taking their own lives and things like that and so a subjective experience refers to the emotional and cognitive impact of a human experience as opposed to an objective experience right which are the actual events so for example while something is objective um intangible and it can be experienced by others it's the subjective experience that is produced by the individual mind so when i mentioned earlier about how people experience their reality based off of what they expect, Um, right? So while quite real to the person who experienced a subjective experience is often, it can't be measured, um, right? And and it's not objectively or empirically measured by others. So a way in which to start to begin to do this is the idea of like, we all have the objective experience of pain. Right, and we all have in the subjective experience to it. So if I tell you a story that is painful, you may say, oh, I can relate because you may go through a bunch of stories or ideas in your head of what you may went through that, how you experience pain in that way. And that's how you're trying to connect and relate. I'm not asking people to connect and relate in that way at all. The moment you say, oh, I understand or I can relate um, because X, Y, and Z, you lost that person. 
because what you what you need to do is objectify identify with whatever they say and that they are experiencing as because what you're trying to do is make it more comfortable in a sense and make it make sense for you it doesn't really need to necessarily make sense for you you just need to listen to what they are saying they are experiencing so like although we all know what pain feels like it's the specific components of pain that no one else can experience so if me and you could be in the same room and the store could be getting robbed the way that you are going to subjectively experience that versus me is what i need to identify with i'm trying to work with you versus it being like what schools do right especially in a lot of the schools that i've been in they lose a lot of students especially over the summer and we take we we, we try to use a cookie cutter something that applies to everybody, right? We take moment of silence before each class starts or something like that. But the way in which each student either had connected with that student that they had lost or even the teachers, they connect differently. Um, and it's, it is the subjective reality um, that we need to get to. Um, to me, it's just really relating on a human level. So when I was working in the clinic, man, I can use the clinic, I use the school. Um, I was only there for a few months before my office was flooded with students. And what I realized what was happening was, and why, why I came up with this, it was that when you identify with your subjective experience, it removes your biases. It removes you from it. Um, and it allows you to be present and really try to tap into whatever it is that they are explaining. Um, and it kind of removes yourself. So it's this idea of what it looks like is, you tell me what that means for you or you tell me what that looks like for you. So my son is two and I kind of talk to him as if he's not. So for example, the kid, kids put stand in his hair at school yesterday. And so I picked him up from school and I'm trying to get all the sand out of his hair. And I'm like, you got sand in your hair. How do you get sand in your hair? And he's, you know, trying to do his best to explain it to me. Whatever it is, right? Like it's not, it doesn't necessarily need to make sense for me. It's him making, make, making it make sense for himself. And then I asked him, well, how do you feel about that? Right. Or what did that look like for you? Right? He will tell you if he felt sad or if he didn't like it mm -hmm. uh, or he may repeat the things over and over again. So it's not necessarily because my feelings about it is I don't like it at all. <laughs> uh, when I get sand in me, I don't like it. But it's yeah. not about how I experience what that is about. What do you feel um, and what is it that so it's just really focusing on the individual and simply connecting with them. A quick and easy way that I tell teachers or organizations do this is. Think of the thing that we do all the time. If I ask you right now, Charlie, how you feeling? You may tell me I'm good. I may be like, that's great. You know, like, good. Um, you may ask me the same question. I'm like, yeah, I'm good too. And we go about our separate ways. Mm -hmm. Asking some, when you go to ask that question or how you doing, if you don't have the capacity to sit with that person and hold space, see them for who they are, the culture, all that, don't ask it. Because as soon as I say, as soon as you say I'm good, which is not even a feeling, you say I'm good and I'm like, okay, cool. And I go about my day. You've already internalized. I could care less about you and actually your day and what you're actually going through. Because I'll be honest with you, black folks will, I'm good you to death. We'll tell you I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And we may have a dollar in our pocket or life could be very, very hard at home. Or I'm not even mentally here right now. But I know if I tell you I'm good, you'll leave me alone. Um, and so mm -hmm. what I was doing with students was, they were I'm good or I don't know me until they run out of breath, I will always create the time and space to be like, what does that mean? I'm asking you how you're feeling, telling me you're good, but what does that mean though? And sometimes that's the first time that they ever heard that or had the opportunity to even explore what that means or looks like for them. Um, because I'm good, it can mean a lot of things for us. It could mean I, I'm actually content, I'm calm, I'm okay, there's nothing that I'm worried about, or it can mean like, I'm not even in a mental state to be able to explain to you what that means. But that gives me a lot of information on how to hold space for you. And so something as simple as if you want to connect, you identify with whatever they're saying that they are experiencing. So, hey, so-and-so, how's it going? You all right? And they be like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. If you don't have the capacity right then and there to be like, come here right quick. Let me check in with you. Let me talk to you. Don't do it. Um, don't even ask because you, Because in a sense, you're doing more harm because it's missing. Yeah, and 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 they can pick up on it, and they know like, oh, right, Miss Charlie, she just it's it's formality at this point, right? It's like a mm -hmm. it's polite if you if you if you say that, and if you you know polite to not even check in about it. So that's that's one of the things and how we I go through some examples um, and explaining that to them and what that looks like.
really just giving them the opportunity. Now, I'm not going to say a student is going to pour out their life and tell you everything. X, I was going to say, because teachers are busy and they don't have time to to do all that work. They don't, they don't have all, no. they want to, but they don't, Yeah. they can't be therapists. Right. But so good. Yeah. yeah. So give me a couple of things they could do quickly to build quick connections. What would you say? And so knowing that one, you have people like me and you who love to come in and do that work for you and help support you in that way. Um, but another way for sure to be able to do that is um, this is the part of the job where be very honest, right? Like this is what we signed up for. This is what we, we love to do. This is the relationship building aspect. Your job description will never say we paying you for relationship building, but that's all you're doing um, to be able to get somebody to listen to you, to learn from you is strictly relationship building. And so, you have to make that time. You have to set up. Uh, and I don't want to make it generic. Like you set up office hours because students not going to come to your office hours because why would they come to your office hours? Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be intentional. So your classroom has to be set up that way. Sometimes you take your lunch break with students um, and you sit and let's say you have, depending on your, your age group or students, but like you pick a table for today and you work your way around a lunchroom or your classroom sets up as check-ins instead of do nouns about, reviewing what we did yesterday or last week and blah, blah. Also adding that do now, um, uh, a check-in that you can take note of and you set up time to check in with that family um, on your own time. So for example, when I started to be, when I was a school social worker, it was during the height of the pandemic. So schools had closed. And so the number one thing we were struggling with was everybody was struggling with attendance. How do we keep students coming in, um, showing up to these virtual things and they don't even have they don't have well-resourced COVID pods that they can go to in their homes. Like, how do we get kids to show up on these screens? Mm-hmm. It was, I helped, because it was just me. I There was no other social worker for 320-some boys. I didn't have a team of people. But I helped the, I forgot, climate culture to be able to sustain a very high number. It was in the 90s. I wrote an article about it for Philly, in our Philly Inquirer. High numbers of attendance because it was me mostly checking in on families and parents a lot of it was not on a time of within the eight hours of the day, but that's just what I signed up for, right? That's where, that's the work that has to be done. And it's unfair to teachers, but the reality is it's the system that schools have created for teachers to exist and do work in. Um, because that shouldn't be unfair to a teacher to build a relationship with a student. Um, it's I, and I, I, I will say here, Kenneth, too, like a lot of, I can just hear in my mind because I was there. I mean, I was in, I was a teacher. I'm always a teacher, right? But I mean, I was in the classroom and I get it. And I, what I can hear teachers telling me is why is all the responsibility on me? Why do I, why does it always go back to me? And listen, I'm on board with you about we have a responsibility to set up that safe space, but why is the responsibility on me? How do we hold kids accountable when they do act out? Because I shouldn't feel threatened in my own space with them either. So let's address I that agree. before we wrap up, because that's important. No, yeah, I agree. And so please don't mishear me, whoever is listening. Um, I'm not putting it all on you. It is not, which is why a lot of during my trainings, while we focus on a lot of community togetherness, culture because it's not just on you you focus you working with i'm talking about one child who exists within a family who exists within a community who exists within a culture it's not just on you to be able to do that and it shouldn't be just on you and why a lot of teachers leave um is because they feel like it's all on them and they have no support from higher ups um which is why i started to create trainings for the higher ups because it's not necessarily the teachers at this point it is board members or executive directors who had no idea what it's like to be on that, you know, that front line. Um, mm-hmm. So what can they do to be able to support that and help their sense of self, which is why you are doing that training um, coming up to be able to help them. It is schools need to find resources like people like me and you who are, who love this kind of stuff, who want to continue to build up um our teachers, our staff, our leaders to be able to continue to do this work. Um, The hard answer to really that question is if you don't feel like you're supported and that you have to be able to figure out where your supports come from. If your boss, your principal um, is really not supporting you, uh, I've seen it firsthand, right? Like you had to make a better decision for you because your safety can't constantly be at 
uh, at stake because you can't be an effective teacher at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. so if you're trying to meet with the parents or tell the, you know, the student needs to take accountability and the parent not seem to be doing nothing, but the school also not seem to be doing nothing, because I'll be very honest with you, they're coming up with a lot of terms and they're cuddling a lot of issues. They're not resolving any issues. It is restorative justice. I think that's the restorative practices. Yeah. I, I don't even, there's, you show me some research on how that works or that it, like the data that that works, right? Like, what does that even, who even came up with that? There's, I haven't seen data that says this stuff works. Yeah. It's good programming. Friends. It's just that it, there's so much to it. It's hard to really get everybody doing it who's in the system to make it truly effective. That's why teaching kids SEL for the last 30 years, it's great stuff. It's really good stuff. It's just not solving the problem. We're still seeing yeah. violence in our schools. We're still seeing kids suffering. We're still seeing educators burning out and parents stressed out. So, okay. So we do need to wrap this up. I, here's what I'd like from you, Kim. That's why, by the way, I posed that question to you because I knew you weren't pinning it on teachers. I wanted to make sure you had that opportunity to expand on that. So when you do, when you, when you do leave these training sessions that you do, or even conversations you have, what do we do with the kid who does act out um, and, um, and, and does threaten either, either threatens us outwardly. Cause we, we didn't even talk about this yet. Violence uh, shows up in so many different ways, but ultimately teachers are frustrated because of repeated student behaviors or fighting or talking back or with these big emotions. So what is the, the short term and long-term solution to those? Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, it's funny because <laughs> teacher, when we do these, when we do these PDs and workshops, teachers want the answers, right? They love the takeaways and all the free resources. And my heart goes out to them, social workers too. My heart goes out to them because it's not solely on you, right? I can give you the, a resource. Um, and it, it also is, if you want to be the sole person to do it, it's going to require a lot of hustle, like, um, and a lot of, uh, uh a work ethic that is, it can lead to burnout, right? It doesn't lead to burnout for me is because I see things systemically. I like, I see the bigger picture, the, 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 end of the macro, the micro. So with that situation, uh, and yes, a teacher may be getting threatened. Then let's say the teacher even went to the parent, teacher then went to the principal um, and the principal, the dean, all the other people who are in place to do, do something about it. Teachers, I think, are feeling like they send these kids to see a social worker or whatever, and the kids come back with a damn lollipop or something like that. Uh, yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. But, and but so, maybe if they understood what actually happened there, maybe if there was some communication, or maybe yeah, if they understood more about what's going on to humanize these kids, maybe they would soften a little bit with their approach and create yeah. a safer space. What do you think about that? Yeah, and that's what I was about to get to how I mentioned the principal, the dean, uh, climate culture, everybody seems to be having their own roles and they do them in their own way. And it's not uh, streamlined across schools at all. You can go to a school down the street from one school and it's completely different than the other one. Mm -hmm. And so- we, Good point. Family, culture, community, it's not just something that exists outside of school. Um, school has its own culture, its own mind that it functions within its own family that and we need to begin to learn how to function at that, right? Mom has her role, dad has her role, child has it, and we all work together to make the, right, the cog spin or the machine work. And so there needs to be a lot of um, togetherness, to use a very simple word, on all parts, right? Like it isn't, it shouldn't be, you get streamlined through a certain amount of people. The student is having an issue, they get sent to this person, they get sent to this person, they get sent to this person. Right, because we're all doing the same work. We all literally are doing the same thing. There's different, you know, uh, job requirements, things like that. And the, the goal of it still is to make sure this child can live the best life they can or get the best education that they can. And so, it teachers don't understand what social workers do. Social workers want teachers to do things that teachers don't have the capacity to do. The principal mm -hmm. and then will pull on heartstrings of a teacher or of a social worker that they're not getting paid to do. Uh, like there is so much disconnect that 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 lives within schools because we don't sit down and have family gatherings in a sense. Let's get together and really have a conversation. 
here's what I do do. So when a teacher is experiencing this, you got the social worker in the room, you got the climate coach, you got the principal. We all can talk about it and figure out what works for us as a school or what is it that we want to go towards. We have a mission if we're going to work towards this mission. What works for us? Like, how do you handle this X, Y, and Z as a teacher? How do you handle that as a social worker? How do you do that as a school nurse? How do you? So now we're starting to create a streamline of systems of support. And so it's not like disconnect where they send them down to me. And I'm like, why are you send them to me? I think there isn't, I don't really see the issue. And then I send you back up to the class and you are more dis because there isn't a, a there isn't a why I like to talk about systems or policies that support both teachers and students to be able to navigate school. It really is just a machine that's kind of like <laughs> been running itself. Um, and we're all trying to figure out where do we fit in on this machine to keep it going? Um, and how do we, you know, best function without no manual, no operating manual, mm -hmm. right? You have no idea on how to really navigate it. Um, but yet you're supposed to do this and do it well in order to be successful or great individual or be very helpful. And so for me, it's hard when you ask me questions on what's the short term or what's the long term, because I think short term and long term, the short term is to start to create these committees within your school that pulls in people from all of the other departments, especially all those departments, even gym, health and fitness, um, pulling those departments to start to figure out how do y'all manage students, your own emotions, discipline, what does that look like so that we can create a system that, like, that actually works for us. Um, because I'm hearing and I'm starting to replay all the the teachers uh, and all the PDs in my mind where they say the exact same things that you say of like, mm -hmm. that don't work. <laughs> or like, you know, I have my students, you don't know my students, that ain't it. It's not just on you and it shouldn't just be on you. Uh, it is a, you're working in a school, uh, which is a, it's a lot of arms to it. Um, and so, Everybody has to play their part well in order for the school to actually be effective um, and be successful. But you get that's why you have great teachers uh, and certain so and so and certain parents love Miss So and So, love Mister So and So. Why don't we pull in those great teachers and see why certain students don't act up in that class? But it works because we don't mm -hmm. even have conversations mm -hmm. together. We need to be having them together and figuring mm -hmm. out what is it that we can be doing, what works for you, and what don't work, and then. Yeah, and build systems that way. So long-term, it needs to be calling family meetings, something very simple. Let's break bread, sit down and eat together and, and, and talk. It's not team building. This is like effective system planning. Or, and then the short term is, um, teachers need to start with themselves first. Like, you got to pour into yourself first um, because you are up against not just that one student, you're up against their culture, their community who don't trust you, their uh, ancestors and generations who have been fighting all their life to be heard and seen, you're not just up against this one student. And so you definitely need to short term is take care of yourself. So for me, I go running. Before I met with you, I run. Uh, it helps my mind. It helps my body. Uh, it helps me to be able to continue to pour back into myself. And this is not that uh, blah, blah, you know, self-care type of thing. It really is like what works for you to sustain you to be able to show up. Because short term, is that you every day, day and out? You have to show up. So what works for you to be able to show up? And that's why I talk about what's the factors of health? What's the factors of good health? The factors that keep you going? What makes life meaningful for you? Talking and finding supports in that way. Um, because long-term, you're gonna be, we're always going to be up against the long-term. We're talking about racism, right? We're talking mm -hmm. about violence. We're sure. always going to be up against those. And so the short-term is you need to make sure you have enough to show up for today and do the best you can for today while always poking at the long term or probing your principal or school to start this committee or whatever. And yes, I know you want to mention this committee or this family gathering to your principal and they might be like, oh, great, you do it. And it's going to feel like one more thing that you have to do as a teacher educator and that there's going to come to an extent, to a point in time where it's like, it is might be up to you to start that or for you to do that. Um, because they are not equipped to, right? They are our leaders in the sense that we go to, but I'm be honest with you. I have some principals who, oh, what's the qualifications to do that? A degree, um, and I'm cool with degrees. I got degrees too, but I know principals who've been math teachers and then just became principal because they knew the last principal that was there, right? Like mm -hmm. we they don't have. What are we? <laughs> yeah, like what are we doing? What are the systems here? Like what is something that we all can follow that works? And 
if we don't have that, how can we start to create that? Um, right. Bringing it all us in to have something as simple as a conversation because it's that one student that that teacher is struggling with, another teacher isn't. Another social worker isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, another disciplinarian isn't. And so they should be in the room with you to figure it out. And it shouldn't just be all on you every time they come into your class. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. It's a it's an unfair question that I pose to you. It really is an unfair question. There are systemic issues that we're trying to solve with equity and inclusion programs. That's not solving the problem. These are historical problems. Yeah. That's what I loved about my social work programs because I, I learned a lot more about that. And ultimately it made me challenge my own implicit bias, which I loved and hated at the same time. It was really, uh, it just tore at my ego. It was hard because I'm like, I'm a good person. I But we all have to challenge ourselves. So, sure. oh my goodness. Okay. So we're running out of time here and I want to make sure people know where to reach out to you because you have so much to offer them. This There's no way in a 45 minute conversation. There's no way to capture what you could actually do. So please tell people where they could reach out to you so that they can connect with you further, Kenneth. Yeah. So um, I have my website um, and you can go on there and get the free resources. And once you go to click on the free resources, it's going to ask you your name, your email, and it's going to ask you, is it okay if I reach back out to you to see if there's anything else that I can do for you? Does the resource make sense? Do you need help? And that's the way that we can start conversation and stay connected. So my website is um, bornanew.com. So it's B-O-U-R-N-E-A-N-E-W.com. So my last name is Born. So it's Born Anew. Anew came about the idea of um, second chances, um, being able to uh, recreate, um, kind of like start over. I felt like black boys and men didn't have the opportunity. So it's like, you know, you can have that opportunity, uh, with born and new, uh, com. or my email is the same thing. It's, it's born a new LLC at born a Um, you can just feel free to reach out that way. Or if you know, Charlie Axer, and I'm okay with her giving you my information. I actually have a meeting now from a training I did in Vegas. Um, somebody took my phone number down. And they texted me and I was like, let's just talk. Perfect. <laughs> uh, like, let's just talk and set it up. So reach out to me. Um, I love to connect. I love to be able to see where it is that we can co-create something. I am very solutions focused. Uh, and we are working on actually building the capacity and not just talking because we all get talked at. And so like, but mm-hmm. I need to know, I don't, or like, there isn't no cookie cutter. So sometimes I need to really sit and, and have a conversation with somebody and be like, maybe this sounds like a bigger conversation that um, I can have with your principal school. Like, let me do it or let me support you in, in building that or starting that. So we can try to build something that actually works for your school. Because um, I meet a bunch of social workers who have even more credentialing than I do. And they like, I don't like this. Anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not why I started social work or this is not why I became a teacher. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it is their hearts that was on fire. It's just being watered down by systems and policies that don't support their burning desire to actually make the change. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, reach out and, you know, let's see if we can be able to collaborate or co-create something that is actually impactful or is going to make a difference for at least them. And then potentially, you know, the overall picture, the bigger picture, their school. Absolutely. Wow. Well, that's great. And you know, I'll have all that stuff in the show notes too. So check that out. Please reach out to Kenneth, everybody. And Kenneth, Thank you so very much for being here and a part of this tough conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me.